right. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Calvary. Uh, we are glad that on this fall morning, with a ton of things that you could be doing, you decided to come out and spend some time with us. If you are new this morning, or you're not new, but you have something going on in your life that we can walk with you with, or help you with, or serve you with, uh, we would love to know that. And so if you grabbed a bulletin, uh, there is a contact card where we have some check boxes, just a way for you to let us know how we can serve you, or if you want to know more info. And you can take those and drop them in one of the uh, blackish charcoal gray offering boxes that are around. Um, and we'd love to know how we can walk with you. So thank you for being here. Something exciting is in a few weeks and it's in your bulletin. And I'm negligent because I don't remember the exact date. I think it's uh, the 23rd, right, Bill? The 23rd. Yes, is the exciting. Post-COVID, we have resurrected the infamous church picnic. And the date is the 23rd, right? Oh, is it behind me? Oh, look at that. What a moron I am. Hey, here's the deal, right? Part of what we do at Calvary is we want to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact others with God's love and truth. And so part of building a body means we're known for each other, we're cared for, we're connected. And there's lots of ways we're trying to do that. But a way in the past that's been effective is just, hey, free food. Anytime you give people free food, even if they hate being together, they show up. And so we're bringing back the free food. And we're not just bringing back any free food because, you know, Lishio's Meatland has the best free food for you guys. And it is hard to top that, but we thought, let's do something new, right? A person can only eat so many Lishio's Meatland's hot dogs in their life before it might catch up with them. So we are going to give you the most authentic from Connecticut barbecue and sides and fixings and foods that you can eat on October 23rd. After our discipleship classes, which you hope you stick around for, we're just going to kind of have a time where it's a lunch together. It's this picnic. There's some activities for our, the kids. There's a chance for you to meet other folks and mingle and get to connect with friends you don't necessarily see that you know and be really proactive in welcoming some new families to Calvary and getting together. So I'd love for you to mark your calendar for that. Uh, just a great time for us as a body to be together, to have another opportunity to know each other and care for each other and to connect with each other. Um, and also, I'd like to make you aware of something in your bulletin, if you have that, or we've talked about, or on your, well, the website, and it's coming up this coming week, right? It's our impact conference part, like I said before, of what we want to do is reach and impact other people, both personally and collectively, with God's love and truth. And there are so many amazing ministries and people that we together as a church get to partner with both locally and around the world. And we as a team and as a mission team who's doing a fantastic job gets to hear their stories and their work and how you're helping God's work around the world. But we don't often get to hear those stories and what's going on and how we can pray and how we can celebrate. And so this week, uh, several of our partners have been coming in from all over around literally the globe, and they're going to be here with us. And so it's an opportunity for us throughout the week to have some different environments to gather together. Those are on this piece of paper. It's on our social media. It is on our website. And I'd really encourage you to make a commitment and really try to prioritize showing up at one of these just to hear God's work goes so far beyond the four walls of this church, and his work goes far beyond what's going on in Fairfield County. And so I'd encourage you to check these out, come to one of these, and then like I referenced last week in the sermon that was about Christians who were being persecuted for their faith around the world, one of the uh, events on Saturday night, this movie night, is kind of focusing on that issue. And so uh, it was a meaningful movie for me. 
and I'd encourage you if perhaps that's the environment or one of those. So you can read what's there. Excited for you to come, and uh, that will be coming up this coming week, and so there's the information about that. And I'm grateful that you're here this week, and it is a privilege, like I shared, that there are so many thousands upon thousands of faithful Christians around the world who if they could do what we're doing right now, that's their dream, and they can't. Because if they were in this room right now, they would be worried about who's in the room that they don't know. Are they a spy who's going to sell them out? They would be worried when they pulled out of the parking lot, what car pulled behind them? Are they following home? Because there is rampant persecution around the world. And I think that, at least for myself, I take this so for granted. Uh, It's just part of what I've always done and do. And I don't even realize how meaningful it is to carve out some time during the week to gather with people who are different places on their spiritual journey, but many people together who are believers in Jesus, to encourage, to share, to say hello, to look somebody in the eye who says they're doing fine, but you can tell they're not doing fine, and a way for us to pray for them or support them, uh, and a way to open up God's Word publicly and unapologetically to figure out what this says for us today. And so we have an opportunity to do that today, and it's a privilege to do that, and so that is what we're going to do. And so I'm going to pray, and then we'll dig into as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. And somebody on staff claimed, probably appropriately slow, that last week I set a world record for sermon length. (laughs) They claimed that I beat the prior standing record by like a minute and 30 seconds. So I'm not going to try and set any more records today, but as soon as I say that, I'll make a new record. So I better just pray and get into it. Uh, Let me pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful for the chance to open up your word and to hear from you this morning. And we think about our brothers and sisters around the world who some of the the ministry, Father, that you know that we partner with, even one of those pastors had their church destroyed this, this recently in the middle of a church service. And so we're grateful for this time, Father. May we not take it for granted. Uh, Please encourage us and help us and challenge us in this time. Help us to understand an opportunity that we have and another thing you expect us to be about, and then give us the wisdom to know how to do that. And we pray this for the glory of Jesus who is reigning now and who one day will come back to reign here. Uh, In his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, we're in this book of Revelation, like you know, right? And I'm not going to go back and rewind everywhere and everything that we've talked about, but the book was written, what we've kind of set as a mark is in, back in 95 AD. And, and today's topic that we're going to talk about is something that back in 95 AD was a hot topic, an issue that Christians in that environment in that day had to wrestle with and had to deal with. And it's not just an issue that was relevant and important in 95 AD, because today, in 2022 AD, it's an issue that every single one of us, no matter where we are, still has to deal with it, right? For thousands of years, it's an issue that Christians have had to deal with back when the book was written, and just as meaningfully and importantly today as we read the words that were written centuries and centuries ago, whether you're a grandfather or a single mom, or a single dad, or a young adult, or a college student, or a sixth grader. This is something that is before you today that you have to face. 
so many times throughout the day, this is something that no matter what stage of life or what demographic, you've got to face it. It's something that if academics, scholars, philosophers, theologians have written countless numbers of books about, but just because it's something that's discussed in academic ways and academic environments, it is still something that on the street level, in our daily lives and daily conversations, we are confronted with and have to navigate and know our way through. We can't ignore it. Some of us might want to because it makes our head hurt. But just because things make our head hurt doesn't mean those are things that we should ignore. And the topic that they were talking about back in 95 AD and the topic that we're talking about today is the issue of truth. Truth. It's an issue of truth, and it's an issue of guarding truth. And that's what we're going to talk about today, because that's what Jesus, through John, wanted to make sure a church back in 95 AD was aware of and talked about. And the, today's sermon, and I am so grateful, I know that, that right, we're not all in the same place spiritually, and I do know that some people who call their Calvary Church, uh, their church home, would not necessarily believe everything that I believe, but they're engaged and they're listening, they're learning. So today's sermon, let me just say, is not a sermon trying to convince you that this book is true. It's not trying to convince you that there are reasonable grounds to believe that this is true. That's a huge topic. It's an important topic. It's a topic all of us should wrestle with, but that's not what we're going to talk about today because that's not really where the text sets us up. There's this presupposition in today's sermon that this is true, right? So let me just own that. I'm not trying to convince you of it. I'm acting out of a presupposition that it is true. And so, for those of us who are aligned with that presupposition, if you're like, yeah, I think the book's true, then what do you and I as a church community need to guard against? What do you and I as a church community, for those of us who affirm the book is true, what do we need to watch out for? What do we need to be aware of? That's what we're going to talk about. We're in Revelation 2, chapters Well, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. And like we've seen our past few weeks together, there's seven letters that are written to seven churches. And in each of them, Jesus is the one communicating the message to the church. But in each of these different letters, Jesus kind of begins by describing himself in a different way. There's a different attribute about Jesus that he uses in communicating to the church. And the one that's described today to the church is important, like they all are, but it's important for the content of what he says. And so here's what Jesus says about himself before he gets into what's going on in the church. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus is being very purposeful, as always, in inspiring John to write down this word, two-edged sword, because there's two kind of nuances that flow from that. As Jesus is coming to this church to give this message, he describes himself as the one who has the two-edged sword. And the first thing, with the use of that term, means that in that culture, that would reveal that he has legitimacy to be judging. He has legitimacy to give this message. In that culture, the Roman soldiers or the Roman guards or the Roman people who had the sword were also the people who could make judgments or make determinations about things. So there's one connotation where Jesus is able to judge, but there's something also going on there because this shows not just his ability to judge, but the tool or the resource or the mechanism by which he's making assessments and judgments, and that's a two-edged sword, which is this reference to God's Word, 
to God's word. There's this amazing uh, reference throughout scripture about how God's word is a two-edged sword. In Hebrews 4.12, we read that same word, right? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Two-edged sword is a reference, a metaphor for the word of God. And Jesus begins this message by saying, church, I'm coming to you. And I have the authority to assess and to judge what's going on in your midst, but I'm also coming to you in the thing that I am using as the metric or the standard is God's word. So let's just <clears throat> sticky note that and let's hold that and come back to that for later. And then Jesus, right, he writes these words to the church in Pergamum. So what do we know? What can we know about the church in Pergamum? We're learning all sorts of amazing things about churches back in the day. Here, here's the church in Pergamum. We got some maps. We got some photos. This is a photo of the ruins of the church of Pergamum. You can flip another one, and then I think we have a map in here somewhere. Man, that is pretty. I'd like to have me a little cup of coffee up there. Look out over the sunrise. And then, so here's where it's located. And you'll, here's, so here's Pergamon. We're continuing. We've hit these churches so far. We've talked about Ephesus, talked about Smyrna. We're going on this northward uh, clockwise journey. And so we're at Pergamum. Here's where it is, about 100 miles north of Ephesus. It was the capital of Asia in that time. And you may have noticed that. Go back to that last picture if you don't mind. You may see that this is kind of elevated, right? This, the city of Pergamum was built about 1,000 feet on the top of a hill above this valley. It was this elevated, this huge church. The church of Pergamum, or the city of Pergamum, I would have liked that city. You know why? Because I am a nerd, and I like books. And this church, I mean this city, had a library with 200,000 copies of handwritten books, that's a lot of books. It's a major center also, like we teed up last week in the city we were in last week, but uh, Pergamum was also a major center of emperor worship. It was, they had temples to it. The, the Roman emperor Domitian at this time was being worshiped as a god. And it wasn't just a center of emperor worship. It was a center of a huge place where different Greco-Roman gods were worshipped, different Greek gods like Zeus, Roman gods. If you wanted to worship a god or you wanted to be a place where the emperors worshipped or gods were worshipped that wasn't the true god, man, you took your day trip to Pergamum. You packed a lunch, you came to Pergamum because there were so many different truth claims and religious claims and worldviews circulating among that city. And in the air of that city, as you breathed in the culture and the priority and the values of that city with the temple to the emperor and the temple to Zeus and three or four other temples, there was just this thought that if you were a good, decent, thoughtful, relevant, progressive Pergamite, then what you did was you would either engage in the worship of the emperor or the worship of these other gods because that's just what people in that culture did. That was the right thing to do. That was the accepting thing to do. That was the normal thing to do. That was the important thing to do. That was the true thing to do, the tolerant thing to do. And that was just in the air in this city. Like, well, of course you would do that. And in that city, there was this little church of Christians who were striving to worship the God of the Bible and Jesus, who they believed in. And there was this pressure from the culture around them to try to just squeezing in on those believers to try to say, what are you guys doing? 
You're so narrow-minded. You're so limited. Like there's the emperor and there's Zeus, and that's what normal people should be doing if they want to be good, decent, loving people pursuing truth. And in that cultural pressure, there was something that Jesus looked at that church and that group of Christians and said, hey, you guys are doing something well, and then I'm going to tell you what you're not doing so well. But, but here's where he begins with what they're doing well. He says that in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. There's this reference in this verse about Satan's throne and Satan dwelling there, which if I was reading the book of Revelation, I'd be like, man, Satan's throne was in this city? Like, what is that all about, right? And here's the good news. Like, you'll hear me say many times, I don't know if it's good news. Here's the news. Like, you'll hear me say many times throughout this study, ain't nobody who knows what Satan's throne is. Nobody knows. There's some options, right? Perhaps it's Satan's throne. Some scholars, commentators, kind of three top options. One is that in that temple of Zeus, uh, there was this 40-foot-high altar, Right, This 40-foot high altar, and on the top of it is kind of where Zeus had this big throne. And some people say, man, there's this 40-foot high throne altar. That must be what he's referring to as Satan's throne. Some other places think, other scholars think it's referring to where the emperor was worshipped. Some other scholars think, well, the city's elevated. The city's up high, like a throne would be in a kingdom. And the city is this place of all this worship of other gods. So the city itself is Satan's throne. We don't know. We don't know. But the people to whom it was written would have understood what that meant. We don't. But even though the specific referent isn't that important, I think the point that Jesus is trying to make is this, that, hey, all around you, church at Pergamum, there is this worship of other gods. But amidst that, even in this place where Satan's throne dwells because there's all this worship, you have remained faithful to Jesus. You have not denied Jesus and the gospel. And you clung to that and you didn't deny that even in the face of martyrdom. There's this phrase about in the days of Antipas who was killed among you. Despite the fact that you are in like the hotbed, the center of the worship of all sorts of other truths and despite the fact that a person who you know who was killed for worshiping God happened and you were aware of that, you have not denied Jesus. The Antipas situation, we don't know anything else about it from the scripture, but church tradition says that this emperor Domitian, who when he learned that the, he, this Antipas guy was breaking the law by worshiping God and not himself, the emperor ruler, that there was this huge kind of like uh, statue of a huge bronze or brass bull and that the Roman emperor had this guy, Antipas, be put inside of this, and he burned him alive inside that statue. Is that true? We don't know, but that's what church tradition, church history tells us. And Jesus is saying, amidst all of that pressure and persecution, Christians in the church, you haven't denied Jesus. So hold fast and continue holding fast. For you and I, kind of one application that we see from this is this challenge to hold fast to Jesus and to biblical truth. Hold fast to Jesus 
and to biblical truth. That's what that church back then got praised for doing. But even though they had done that well, there was still something that they together as a collective church were not doing well. That Jesus said, hey, we got to work on this. We got to address this. We have to be aware of this. And in the very next sentences, he tells them what they need to deal with because they haven't done it well. So I know where you dwell, yet you hold fast to my name. You didn't deny my faith. Those are good things. But then verse 14 starts in this way. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Right? So church... You've done great not denying Jesus, but you're not doing great because in your midst, there's some of you who you sat next to at the barbecue bash and ate some beak beans and coleslaw and pulled pork and whatever other delicacies there were, who they have either, they've bought into something like the teaching of Balaam or they bought into the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In order for us to understand what that has to do with us today, we got to kind of understand what are these two other things talking about? This deal with Balaam, what was Balaam all about? What were the Nicolaitans all about? So here it is, ready? Four to five minutes on some other, right, what these things were about. First, let's talk about Balaam. What was this deal with the teachings of Balaam? Who was Balaam? Balaam was this prophet. Back in the Old Testament, you can read about him in Numbers 22 through 25. There's more about it in Numbers 31. But here's the cliff note. Ver- do they still have cliff notes? They do? They have spark notes too, right? Okay, good. Thank you. Just got to keep in touch, right? Finger on the pulse, all that. Here's what you'll read about with Balaam, right? Balaam was a, a prophet of Israel, and another king came and said, Hey, dude, I need you to kind of be a traitor to your own country. And I need you to get on my side because I'm trying to figure out how I defeat this country of Israel. And so Balaam kind of gave him some advice, some ideas, and that didn't really work out well. So here's what Balaam said, right? And I love reading about the CIA and other countries' intelligence sources and spy novels. And it's the same concept that are in those that we read about, right? This idea of a honeypot. I don't know if you know what a honeypot is, but here's what a honeypot is. Here's what Balaam told that other king. Okay, king... You need to get some ladies from another country to start hanging out with these Jewish guys. And you need these ladies from this other country to start over time convincing these Jewish guys that they should participate in this false worship from the other countries. You need to convince these, these Jewish guys that it is good for them, it's okay for them to start worshiping the false gods and participating in the worship of false gods and all the things that go along with it. Because over time, that's going to weaken their faithfulness to the true God. And over time, that's going to weaken what happens to them and the consequences. So Balaam's plan was this. Hey, get some women from other countries who engage in relationships with Jewish dudes. And through those relationships, they convince those Jewish dudes to start worshiping the gods of other countries and all the things that go around with it. This is what's fascinating in the story of Balaam. That's the same in the Nicolaitans. None of the plan... And in all that, the Jewish men never denied that God was true. The Jewish men never denied that everything that they'd been taught was true. What they did was they simply added some things onto the truth and also called it true. Nicolaitans, this was a sect of Christianity 
that was circulating in this time who said, yep, there was a dude named Jesus who died, buried, resurrected, came back, right? A substitute for me. I believe that. That's how I get right with God. They ascribed to the Christian faith, but they also said this. They said, but hey, when we're starting to hear some things about this Christian faith, there's grace and there's freedom, right, in Christ. We're we're, we're free. And so this is what they said. As Christians, you have liberties and you have freedoms and you can do what you want. And so what they started to say to the people in this city and other cities, and so guess what? You, You can believe in Jesus, which is great, but you can also go to the worship service for Zeus and worship him and sing to him and sacrifice to him and engage in everything that goes along with that. You can believe in Jesus, but you have freedom and you have liberty to also go to the worship service for Domitian, the Roman emperor, and call him a god, right? And worship him as a god and all the things that go along with it. Interestingly, in that belief system, they they never denied that this was true. They never denied that there wasn't a God. They never denied in Jesus. But what they said is, hey, but there's some other things that are also true for you to add on to that. And now all of that is true. So here is kind of of a little illustration to kind of help us visualize this and think about this and uh, process this. I have two bowls of blue water which I'm not going to spill on myself because that would be really awkward in this moment, right? Somebody this morning said this looks like the thing that you see at the old barber shops with the combs floating in it. <laughs> it is. I stole it. <laughs> right? but, but here's what we, I want to use these things um, to kind of illustrate this morning. The blue water represents God's truth. And, and over here you have God's truth, right? Blue water Belief in God, belief in Jesus. But what these people were doing is they'd say, hey, you know what? You can also add some things to the truth. You can add some things to the truth which are also true. And here's the reality. When you add those things to the truth, it changes it. It changes it. Now, both of those still have blue in it. Right? Both of those still have blue water in it. The blue is still in here. The blue hasn't been taken out. The blue has just been added to, and it's altered it. It's changed it. Not by removing the truth, but by adding to the truth. That's what was happening in this church with this church that was having the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. There was belief about God, belief about Jesus for the Nicolaitans, but then there were things added to it that changed all of that. And some people in the church were believing that and buying into that. I'm like, yeah, this Nicolaitan thing sounds kind of good, right? I'll have Jesus, but I'll have other things added to it. But just the fact that some people in the church were believing it wasn't the ultimate problem in that body. Because the ultimate problem in the body was not just that some people in the church believed it, but the ultimate problem was how the church collectively had responded to it. That's what we see in verses 15 through 16, where it says, So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Repent. 
Now, Jesus is not talking to the people who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Jesus is talking to the other Christians and says, hey, all y'all, all y'all have some people. That's Southern, by the way, right? I could say you guys, but we'll do all y'all. All y'all have some people in your midst who hold to the teachings of this. All y'all, you've, you've gone off course a little bit by allowing that to happen. Jesus is not just talking to the people who hold to the false teaching. Jesus is talking to the larger church community that hasn't addressed or dealt with or tried to respond to the fact that people in their church hold to it. And interestingly, the people that Jesus, Jesus wants these people who hold to the false teachings, obviously not to hold to it. That is not appropriate. In addition to having the people who hold to the false teaching not hold to it, Jesus also wants the larger church body man to deal with it. And he's telling the larger church body, larger church body, you guys have to repent because you've allowed people in your midst to drop things to the truth that aren't there and y'all didn't do anything about it. You just let it happen. It's this call for them and this call for us to lovingly keep each other from adding to biblical truth and then calling it truth. It's this call to them and the call to us to lovingly keep each other from adding to biblical truth and then calling it truth. And this has such importance for us today. I, I, man, I'm grateful for this sermon series because last week we talked about the persecuted church and God's sovereignty. We spent 58 minutes talking about people who were risking losing their life because of their faith in Jesus. And this coming week, we get to hear stories from people in countries, serving in countries where Christians there have the fear of being martyred or persecuted because of losing their life because of their faith in Jesus and God's sovereignty. In God's sovereignty, we're talking about truth in a moment where 95 AD Christians were trying to figure out truth. This is not new to us, but this is definitely before us from all sorts of places. Today, you and I are facing all sorts of red food coloring that the temptation and the pressure is to drop that into truth and to also call that truth. Where do those things come from? Well, here, here's a little, just some thoughts of the pressure that you and I face. And here's biblical truth, right? That's that center box. Boom. But onto the biblical truth, there is this, these, all these other things that want to drop into that to call that truth. <clears throat> there are positions and thoughts and truth claims on so many different issues from people that do not have a biblical worldview, that would have a secular worldview, that are trying to add into there what is true. We, we could spend, for each of these, we could spend the next hour bullet pointing these. But one thing that you and I face is that a culture that is not aligned with a Christian worldview has all sorts of variety of beliefs about what is truth. And what their claims to truth are, trying to drop into biblical truth and call that all truth. But there's also pressure to biblical truth that come not from secular people, that come from religious people. Religious people. We're here 
most of us. And, and there's pressure this way, like, hey, here's what's true, but from an anti-Jesus perspective or a a-Jesus perspective, meaning Jesus isn't a foe. But then there's people who will say they align with Jesus who try to bring all sorts of things into this as well and say, yeah, 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 but in addition to that, here's some other things that are true. And we could spend bullet point that. We see this many times if you're a Christian as oh, we got to really watch out for this. But you know what? This, man, this can pollute this just as easily. This, from other Christians, trying to add to truth, from, can, can muddy this just as well. Then we have this pressure because there's convictions that are based on biblical truth that people try to all call truth. There is truth and then there are convictions that flow from that truth that unless we're really, really careful, we start talking about this being true as well. I have thought for a long time about what example should I use of any of these. And I, I don't know yet if I'm going to because the risk is whatever example I use, some of you will get mad at me and will miss the point of the message. It's true. That's true. <laughs> um, and then there's opinions. Then there's preferences. That over time, right, these convictions, this means there is a Bible verse that says something. And so in order to align myself with that Bible verse, here is a conviction about what I think I should do. Okay, let's see. So, oh, this is, <laughs> my wife is looking at me like, don't do it. I'm going to let, but the, oh, I want, the problem is, guys, this gets so blurry because what happens is over time this becomes true. That's why if I say some of these things to you, you'll be mad at me because you're like, well, dude, that's true. No, it is a conviction. It is good to have a conviction based on truth, but your conviction is not truth. And when you start acting as if this is true, we get in all sorts of problems. And then there's opinions. There's preferences. There's, well, this is what I think. And trying to be here, ooh, it's a, it's a trying to do, maintain this. Man, we're in a tough spot, guys. You're not in a tough spot if you're like, ah, throw it all in the mix. Who cares? Why are you talking? If you want to do this, hey, it is easy peasy, right? You can pick from here, pick from here, pick from here, pick all sorts of food color and dip it in there, throw it in. You get something. You get something. And in your something is some of that, but in your something is not that. And in this era, it has always been difficult for Christians. In the early church, what the church almost split about months after Jesus went up to heaven was, okay, well, here's what we know about Jesus, faith in Jesus, belief in Jesus, but we need to add to that that Gentiles need to be circumcised because that is truth. And the early church was in a code red situation over, is that true or is that true? And they had to figure it out, and it was ugly, and then there was this big fight about whether you eat meat to idols, and, and Paul and Peter had this big, like, like, you know, world wrestling federation moment of a fight and dispute. It has always been hard for Christians to navigate what's that and what's that. 
And it is hard for us today to navigate this. It's hard. It's not going to get easier. Because all of this is speaking loudly and passionately and declaratively and to try to wisely parse it all out is a challenge. Is a challenge. But what Jesus said to a church a long time ago is, guys, you didn't rise up to the challenge. You got lazy and you allowed this and you didn't deal with it. And then the question is, okay, well, that's, but Peter, how do, we, how, do we, how do we figure all this out? How do we parse it out? How do we know what does a secular world tell us that actually is true? What are the priorities of a secular world that may not be true? And, and, and that's why it's so important that we go back to how Jesus the tool that Jesus said he is using to judge and to assess, and the tool, the standard that Jesus was using was this. Jesus says, look, I'm coming into your environment where there is this, and I'm coming with a two-edged sword to try to parse through this and get you back to that. I'm using this as the gauge to what passes into this, if anything. Nothing gets added to this unless it comes through this. And if it isn't in this or doesn't come through that, it can be something, but it isn't truth. It can be a conviction. It can be an opinion. It can be something, but it isn't truth. And then Jesus ends with this encouragement. We're going to circle back to this truth idea in just a minute. But Jesus ends with this encouragement because if I was you and I was in a series in Revelation and the guy up front didn't talk about this, I'd be like, man, the dude skipped over the juicy part. What does that mean? So here's what it says. He then gives some encouragement to this body and he says, look, body at Pergamum, larger collective church. Man, I want you guys to repent and to deal with it. And as you do, let me just tell you the reward that's going to be given to you for maintaining steadfastness to that. Here it is, 17. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is that about? I don't know. It's not because I haven't read a lot of commentaries. Uh, My eyes have gotten so bad because I've been reading so much. Okay, so... These are some thoughts, right? These are, these are words of comfort. Most people are pretty aligned that this hidden manna idea is links back in the Old Testament. God provided manna to people to sustain them, and manna was this bread-like substance. Jesus is the bread of life. So it's this concept that, look, as you maintain your steadfastness to this, some way Jesus will be there as manna to sustain you and to help you, to nurture you, and to be with you in that process. And encouragement. There's also this encouragement about you're going to get this white stone one day with a new name written on the white stone. What could that be? Well, it could be uh, a few different things. Interestingly, in that culture, if you were a member of a jury, the way you would vote for not guilty was with a white stone. If there was a defendant in front of you who was accused of something and you thought they weren't guilty, you'd like flip up your white stone. Okay? Not the white stone bridge, by the way which I know way too well, right? A white stone. So there's some thought of, well, hey, what he's saying is, man, as you sustain at the end of the day because of your relationship with Jesus, you are not guilty because of what Christ has done for you. Could be. 
Some people uh, point to the fact that in this culture, if you want to race, right? So like the Jingle Bell Run is coming up uh, this December. I ran the Jingle Bell Run myself for a few years until your children started to pass me on the Jingle Bell Run. And when your sweet child started to go, hi, Pastor Peter, how are you? And I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm done with this, right? Young man's game, let the kids win it. But in that culture, right, you get the jingle bell run, you get a little dealio, you eat a banana, it's great. But in that culture, when you won something, you were the victor. For some of those, you would get a white stone. This white stone was like a VIP unlimited pass to sporting events in that day, right? You could get into whatever you could get into forever. It's this idea that as you persevere, you'll be able to get into heaven, could be. In the false religions, when you were initiated into some of the false religions, you would receive a stone with your new worship of Zeus name on it. And some people think that Jesus is levering this fa- leveraging this false belief to move it into a true belief. Could be, I don't know, but there's something here about, hey, as you press into this, Jesus will be there to sustain you in that effort. And there will be rewards for those who faithfully cling to that amidst all the pressures to move into that. But the, the, the big point that Jesus is talking to that church about and talking to us about are kind of these two ideas that we've seen, and this is how we'll end our time, that we're to hold fast to Jesus and biblical truth. And we are to lovingly keep each other from adding to biblical truth and calling that truth. So, a few Peter thoughts. This is not biblical truth. This is a dude up here who has the mic who, uh, you know, is certainly not saying this is inspired, but uh, a few thoughts and a quote as we wrap this last part together. Um, Part of what, guys, part of our obligation an opportunity is for us as a community to help ensure the truth is clung to within this community. That's part of what, out of this book and this letter to this church, God says, hey, I need every church as a body. As a body. Part of what that body does for the body is to ensure that truth is clung to within this community. We carved out some time this past summer to work through a book about, and the thoughts, different books, about how do we discern truth and culture, what are some obstacles to that. One of the books we use is Wisdom Pyramid. I'm grateful, and I know that you guys are going to use this in one of the classes coming up. But this is what quote out of this book that deals with this. Part of knowing Scripture well, i.e., part of knowing truth well, is knowing it in community. This is one reason the church is important. The church is an interpretive community where collective wisdom across church history and in various polity structures provides guardrails against errant theology. And it continues. Christian community brings fullness and focus to our understanding and application of God's truth in ways that go deeper than just what a just me and Jesus approach can take. One... So many things in life have unintended consequences. So many things in life have a dark side to them and a good side, right? Your greatest gift is your greatest weakness. I think one of the challenges, one of the truths, one of the realities is that, yes, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, yes. But it was never intended just to remain a personal relationship with Jesus. It was meant to be a relationship with Jesus that you live out in Christian community. Other countries get that because they're not individualized. I have a vote. I have a say. 
countries. I think in America, the more we kept talking about personal relationship with Jesus, personal relationship with Jesus, personal relationship with Jesus, what has infused into the water is this idea, well, I got Jesus, so I don't need anything else. I got Jesus, so I don't need those other people, but that is never the way your relationship with Jesus was meant to live out. That is an aberration that is not good for any of us. In ways that go deeper than just what a just me and Jesus approach can take, a church community frees you from the crushing weight of self-obsession. It frees you to be part of something bigger than yourself with people who are not like you. That is a good thing, right? We, we, don't want, we want unity around the gospel and truth. We don't want uniformity. It frees you to be part of something bigger with yourself, with people who are not like you. It frees you from the bias-conferring bubbles of only being exposed to like-minded people who always affirm but never challenge you. It frees you from the burden of only being accountable to yourself, what you believe, how you like to worship, how you interpret the Bible, how you want to live, and so on. When we are the only authority on these things, it's hard to be wise. And when we are the only authority on these things, I'll add, we can easily drift into untruth. Part of our privilege, what this guy is pointing out, what lots of people is that we as a community ensure that truth is clung to within this community. And so if we're to do that, here are a few thoughts and realities. We've got to do that, first of all, with love, humility, and the right motives. We have to do that with love, with humility, and with the right motives. Not with arrogance, not with anger, not with a desire for everybody to tell us how smart and how right we are, but with love for each other. Because... I need you to help me maintain truth, and you need the person next to you to help maintain truth. And we need to do that in a loving, kind way. The second reality is this, that if we're a community to help each other ensure truth is clung to, is that guarding truth is hard if we don't know truth. If you don't know what this is, then you're not going to know whether this is that. If you don't know what this says, then you're not going to know what can be added into that. Every time, 99% of the times I say that, I say that with great humility because I've had the true privilege, largely because of kindness of, of people who supported us, to go away for three plus years and do nothing but read the book. <laughs> right? And I know that that's not. Um, so I know, I would not know much at all if I had, had not had that opportunity. So I'm aware of that. Uh, but I'm also aware that we have so many positive, helpful resources that if we all really want to figure out what truth is or what it is on an issue, we do have the ability to do it. There are so many resources out there, we can also get lost in the weeds in a long, bad way. But... Any of you in this room this morning have the ability to dig into an issue and figure out what is true about it. I, I will help you get to a resource that addresses that issue from an orthodox, evangelical, historic Christian perspective. So if you're like, bro, I need a blog, I need a book, I will help you point to that. You can disagree with it, that's fine, but I'm not, I will give you what a historic, orthodox, approaches to that issue, and then you're free to do with it. 
But if we don't know truth, it's going to be really, really hard for us to guard truth. And then this, we started talking about this um, <clears throat> as a staff this week. And we need to know truth, God's truth. And for those of us who are Christians, who are parents, uh, we would want our kids to know God's truth. But, um, man, as a 50-year-old dude, I think there's this huge fiscal cliff coming. I think there's this huge gap coming in what third graders and fourth graders uh, are learning about whether this is true in God's truth. It's a different age, right? And I'm not saying the old way was the best way. Um, for better or for worse, okay? And there is good. There's also downsides. Like everything in life in a fallen world is good and bad. But man, when I was coming up, and this is, listen, 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 listen. This is not guilt. This is not my way is the best way. This is not, this is just a dude who cares about you and your families if you have kids. When I was coming up, for better or for worse, man, Sundays, I was in the church house. And Sundays, whether I believed it all or could comprehend it all, man, I was learning the Word in a way that I could understand it. Right? I mean, it, it, you think like, man, here are the plagues. Here's the cross in the Red Sea. Here are the prophets. Here's Samson. Here's, I mean, you, you were just learning. Now, there's a lot of bad about that because some of the bad was that if you show up to class, you get a gold star, and God loves you if you have a whole row full of gold, gold stars. We, we went a little too much on the legalistic show up and no grace, um, which wasn't good, but there was the sense that if for whatever reasons the parents in, an even, in a Christian family weren't teaching the kids that the parents would be getting those kids in a Christian environment in church where the church would be partnering with the parents to be able to teach the kids. And so there was a learning and there was a familiarity. And as you grew, you start... And um, man, I just... I don't know about how well these 5th and 6th and 7-year-olds and 10-year-olds um, parents. Our job is not to teach your children. Our job is to partner with you in the teaching of your children about God's Word. But generally, in Christian circles in America today, families have prioritized I'm not judging. I'm just shooting you straight from my view. Families have prioritized a whole lot of other things for their kids instead of being in environments where they can regularly hear God's Word being explained to them in an age-appropriate way. Which is a choice that families make. Sports are amazing things. Uh, whether you think I do a good job with it or not, I'm just telling you one or two of the key leadership things I've learned in my life, I've learned playing basketball on a small gym on a team with a coach that isn't here today but comes here who taught me one or two things that, man, it applies across the board. It applies to me as a leader, a lesson that I learned in sports. There is a very successful leader at a church who led troops into battle who he and I were also talking about. Yeah, that coach taught me this too, right? Sports Teach kids. There's value to that. Um, 
but there's also things that are being taught about priorities and what's the most important thing. And as a family, if you've made the choice that sports is the most important thing instead of your kids being in regular environment, that is your choice. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying, man, you better put on your boots and do some heavy lifting and make sure you're teaching your kid about Jesus. That's all I'm saying. You choose what you choose for your family, and that's your choice between you and the God. But if you're choosing that there's something else, man, look, I think there's a dearth of just knowledge about the book, and that is the failure of churches, and it also could be that parents have had an opportunity to really press into teaching their kids, and we just haven't taken that opportunity. Um, I've, I look back, and I, I still, man, I'm not, I'm not a model of this, okay? I, um, I'm not that guy that's having family devotions every night with my family. That's a, that is something that I should have done better and that I should be doing better now. So um, your kids are getting to hear about truth somewhere. Your kids are hearing about sexuality somewhere. Your kids are hearing about all sorts of worldviews somewhere. They are hearing it. The question is, is all that they're hearing being balanced with Christian truth and a Christian worldview and a Christian teaching about the story of Jesus and everything that lines up with that and a Christian teaching about sexuality? Because they're getting that teaching. The question is, are they getting Christian teaching along with it um, in addition to it. Okay. Man, I didn't even talk about a conviction, but I'm going to get... I, I, I'm not trying to make you all feel guilty. That is not my heart. I care about your families. Um, and I want us to represent Jesus well. And part of representing Jesus well is we need to know that. So next thing, and we're almost kind of done. I think a challenge to this is that thinking critically, man, that's a lost skill. We don't know how to think critically anymore. You know what we knew how to do? We, we can't think critically, broadly. Not you guys, maybe not you guys. Broadly. We've lost the ability to think critically, and so that's been, um, that's been replaced with, well, I don't want to think about the issue. I just want to insult you. If I can come up with a better one-liner to slam you, then I've won the argument. So I don't actually want to talk about the issues. I'm just going to insult you and mock you and make fun of you, and now I've won. We've replaced being able to discuss an issue with insulting each other around the issues, and we call that discussion. And for us as Christians, one other thing is this, and, and I've said this in different environments. Man, we need to be able to triage and take a breath. <sighs> okay, And we need to triage whether we're talking about truth or something else. We need to be able to run through this grid when somebody makes this comment about something or somebody gives a different position. We need, or before we say something is true, we need to think about a few things, right? Is this the issue that this actually directly addresses? Does the Bible actually address that issue? Okay, if it does, we were, that's a certain path we take. Or is it a conviction or a principle, like we said before, that flows out of that? Okay, if it is a conviction or principle, let's talk about that. Let's engage in that. Let's try to make each other more like Jesus and more holy and more respond by talking about it. But let's make sure we understand we're talking about convictions and principles and not truth itself. My conviction... What is a good, my, like, my, I can't even think of something. My conviction of whether I should wear this mic or a lapel mic, right, is not biblical truth. It is a conviction. It is, let, let's just be able to take a breath 
and parse out, and what I'm advocating, is it actually something from the book, or is it my conviction or principle that comes from the book? And another thing to triage, right, uh, is just this question. Is the discussion that we're having that you and I are disagreeing about or talking about, is a discussion that's actually about an issue of political policy on which the Bible is silent? And I think we don't kind of pause, and we could have four or five other uh, grids to run us through, but I don't think, sometimes I think our problem is we don't pause and make sure we know what we're actually talking about, and we end up making truth claims or defending claims that we're saying are true that actually aren't really about truth. They're about my conviction. They're about a, 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 a guardrail that flows from the book but isn't really in the book. And so triaging is helpful. And I think another thing, going back to the fact that our society, it's hard to think critically, is just kind of one maybe um, assume the best in each other that we could have is this. That, and it's up there. This is really important. Stating biblical truth on one issue does not necessarily mean that a person is saying another thing about... Okay, stating a biblical truth on one issue does not necessarily mean that one is saying that another thing is untrue or is unimportant, okay? When somebody says something is true, we don't need to assume that they are necessarily saying something is not true, okay? And we see this a lot because... There are a lot of things in the Bible that are both ands, that are true. We see this a lot in the discussion about abortion issue, okay? Because what we've done is we've carved this into either we care about people's lives after they're born or we care about people's lives before they're born. And if you make a comment saying people's lives before they're born, if you say that that is an important true thing to think about, then you must mean you don't care about people's lives after they're born. No, no. You, you can hold to both of those things and they're both equally true. But I think what happens in a lot of conversation, at least in our, not our, our, but our larger air, is if I come up to you and I say, and I say, hey, man, what happens to a person before they're born is matters. We should value that. A response that I will get somehow is, well, you're saying that, but you don't care about people's lives after. You don't think those are important. No, I didn't even say anything about people's lives. But we just want to, we, 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 we are boxing each other in and we're not being helpful in our conversation about truth. Many times if you say one thing, the other thing is still true. At the same time, if I say one thing about this, if I say there is blue water in this, which is true. Well, no, there's not. There's clear water with blue folk coloring in here. If I say there is blue water in this, I ain't even talking about what the drum kit looks like. But many times, we, we, we just need to make sure we understand if you say something about this, you're not necessarily saying, say, the other thing isn't true or even addressing it. And I think somebody says something and we start screaming about them about the issue over here. And it's like, dude, this issue isn't even on the table. Like, what are we talking about? And conversations about truth are a whole lot easier to do face-to-face -face than online. You may think, you're scoring points because you made a pithy, witty, snarky comment on somebody's reply on social media, but that's about all you did. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's ever changed their opinion of what they think is true because they were insulted in a mocking, sarcastic way. I think the way to have conversations are face-to-face, eye-to-eye, voice-to-voice, person-to-person, flesh and blood, 
brothers and sisters. And I, <clears throat> there are people um, here who you've disagreed with me. And we've sat down in my office, and I have so benefited from the conversation. Um, and conversations about all sorts of things where you had a different perspective, but I learned from you. I, I, my view of something was shaped, and there was respect, and there was honoring, and there was kindness and love as brothers and or sisters in Jesus, and that is a good thing. That is something to continue. So let me leave you with two questions, and I'll ask the worship team to come up here. here here's the first question, and then next week we're in the next church to talk about. <clears throat> what area or topic, what, what's the area or topic in which you need to learn more about truth? As you sit here, maybe it's the Bible. Maybe it's like, I don't understand the biblical story. What's the area or topic in which you need to learn more about truth? And what is one step that you can take to do that? First question, what's an area where like, man, there's a gap, there's an opportunity to learn more about truth, and there's a step for you to take that? Um, one, of your, one of the kids of somebody who came here, I had the privilege of doing a class that I did for the adults, but I did it maybe, I don't know, a year or so ago on uh, homosexuality, same-sex attraction. I did it in high school and I did it in middle school. And the questions, I think I've shared this, but the questions that are being asked by your kids, these are the questions. They're not asking, I want to know what, the, they're not asking, what does the Bible say about homosexuality, right? They, they're, they're drilling down at a, um, at a deep and meaningful and good place to ask this. But this was the question that was posed to me, right? Literally. And it's good. It's a good question. And I was so grateful. This is the question. Is it a sin for a same-sex attracted person to date another person of their same gender? Is it a sin for a same-sex attracted person to go to the movies with someone of the same gender that they may be attracted to. I'm not asking if homosexuality is a sin. I'm not asking you what you think. I'm asking you, is doing that a sin? That is a good question. And those are kind of the questions we've got to be prepared and equipped to answer. And I know right now some of you just went, click, I don't want to talk about it. Well, your grandkids do. That's what they're thinking about. And so we need to get caught up to speed and know how to respond. And I am so grateful that that student and your students were in this environment to have that conversation. Well, I mean, I'm grateful. Let's bring it. Let's go. We, you know, I'm so grateful for the class we did on truth that we had a bunch of high school students who were asking these profound questions and we're talking about it. What area of topic do you need to learn more about truth? What's one step? And here's the second question is this. Have you had a recent conversation about truth? where you were angry, unloving, or arrogant? Have you had a recent conversation about truth where you were angry, unloving, or arrogant? And if the answer is yes, you need to apologize. You don't need to say that they're right. You need to say, I was a jerk in the way I had that conversation with you. What area do you need to learn more about truth? And so what's one step? And then have you had a recent conversation about truth where you're angry, unloving, um, or arrogant? And if so, apologize. Next week to next church. And I know God's got some truth for us out of that. So I uh, hope you'll come back to that. And I hope you take advantage of some of the classes we have going on as well where you can be in smaller communities and dialogue about all sorts of meaningful scriptural things. So let's sing, and then we'll uh, move on to what God has for us the rest of the day.